0: Please turn your Bible to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, either under your chair or the chair in front of you, this is on page 965. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to take that one home with you. Uh, As most of you know, today's the first sermon in this series. I expect to be preaching Revelation until about the holidays, Lord willing. We'll see if it's a little bit before that a little bit after that, but... I'm um, really looking forward to preaching this book to you. I've never preached from Revelation, at least uh, as the book as a whole, uh, in my entire life. <laughs> I've preached various sermons here or there, but this will be a new experience for me. I'm curious how many of you have heard a series preaching through Revelation at some point in your life. A couple of hands over here. Okay, it's so probably about a half dozen people. So this will be a new experience for all of us almost. So hope it will be a real encouragement to us. Please follow along silently as I read aloud Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. During the summer of 2002, my uh, dad was diagnosed with kidney cancer. This was right before I went off to college. And uh, that fall, a few months after he was diagnosed with cancer, my parents were celebrating their 25th wedding anniversary. And as part of that, a friend of a friend, an anonymous friend of a friend, uh, heard about my dad's sickness, that he wasn't doing terribly well, and wanted to give my parents a memorable gift. And particularly, they wanted to give my parents an all-expense-paid trip to anywhere in the world and let them decide where that was going to be. I told them everything would be taken care of, from airfare to whatever, uh, where they stayed, what they ate, and so forth. My dad was in a wheelchair at the time because of his sickness, so that necessarily limited what their options were. But uh, they ended up deciding on a cruise from Miami to San Diego through the Panama Canal. My dad grew up in San Diego, so then they'd be able to spend several days with family, with his uh, his dad and siblings. And uh, what the, the trip ended up being uh, a truly memorable and valuable time for my parents together. My dad died a few months after that, and so it was really... Kind of their last trip. It was their last trip together, the last time away, and uh, it was you know something that I know my mom has looked back on with fond gratitude for that anonymous, very generous gift. And I only tell you that story to ask: Can you think of a more generous gift to give to a man who's dying? Uh, that really overwhelmed my parents. They were immensely grateful. But it was something they could not have afforded on their own. It gave them the freedom to get away from all the incessant medical appointments from the Chicago winter. It was in February that they went. It uh, gave them freedom from the normal stresses of life in addition to the profound difficulties they were facing with his physical condition, all while making memories—excuse <coughs> me memories on what would end up being their last trip together. And as you consider how truly generous and thoughtful that gift was... I want to tell you, as remarkable as that gift was, it does not begin to compare with how generous of a gift the book of Revelation is from God to us. The first words of this book tell us this is God giving a gift, giving the book of Revelation. And I'm telling you, this is, the fact that he gave it means that it is a gift, And that's essentially what I want to argue today, that the book of Revelation is a gracious gift of God. That's the most succinct way I can summarize what this book is. It's not something we need to be afraid of. It's not something we need to say, oh, that's too controversial, we're not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. Could it be controversial? Maybe. You know, I really hope that it doesn't create controversy in our church as I preach through this. I hope it just makes you want to read the Bible even more because this book is... Soaked in the Old Testament. Like every phrase, it feels like, is alluding to the Old Testament. So I hope it makes you want to read the Bible more and understand the Bible better. But I hope you also just say, Thank you, God, for this amazing, generous, thoughtful gift of telling us all that you contain in this book of Revelation. Now, if you are here and you are not a Christian, we are so grateful that you're here. I'll tell you, this book is a little bit unusual, and maybe you're a little bit unfamiliar with this part of the Bible but I'll tell you that it does address some of the questions that you probably wonder about yourself on your own time. Like, for instance, what will happen at the end of time? That's a good question. It's a question I wonder about. It's a question most of us probably think about once in a while. It's a question that Hollywood has had a heyday playing around with. There are dozens of movies just about what the end of the world would be like. So that's one question in this book. Seeks to answer. More specifically, do you ever wonder what will happen when you die? At the point you have a heart attack, or the point you die in a car accident, or you die of cancer, or any number of other things that could or will take our lives from us, at some point down the road, hopefully a very long time down the road, what happens to you? Do you just turn into dust in the grave, and that's the end of you? The end of your existence? Is there a place such as heaven and such as hell? Is there any real justice at the end of time? Is there an end of time? Most people, if they're willing to take a little bit of time to think about it, will say, yeah, there is an end of time, and it's coming, and it's coming because of climate change, or it's coming because of nuclear, uh, nuclear warfare, or any number of other traumatic events that sound like really interesting movies. But the Bible has a different answer than those movies are going to give you. And those questions that I ask, and I assume you ask as well, find their fullest answer from the Bible in this book <clears throat> that we're beginning today. And that's part of what makes it such a kind gift from God, that he would even answer those important questions for us at all, that he would recognize our desire to think through what the end of life is going to look like and so forth. So what makes Revelation such a gift? I've tried to tell you it's a beautiful gift. It's a generous gift from God. What is it about this book that makes it such a gift? And I have four answers for you. The first is that this book is a gift because it reveals the glory of Christ. And again, we get this from the very first sentence. The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And right there, you could spill entire pages. Actually, I should say commentaries have spilled lots of ink on pages to answer the question of what the word of means. And I'm not going to bore you with that too much. I'm just going to tell you it means it's both about Jesus and it's from Jesus. That's clear as this book goes on from the context of the whole book. This is both about Jesus and from Jesus. Where did Jesus get this revelation, this gift? He got it from God, verse 1 tells us. God gave this vision, this revelation, to Jesus but what we find out from the end of verse 1 is that God, He, made it known by sending His angel to His servant John. So actually we have quite a connection here. We have God giving a gift to Jesus, who gives it to an angel, who gives it to John, who gives it to you. Did you notice that in verse 1? God gave this revelation to Him to show to His servants. That's you. That's you. That was the first audience for sure. That's who it was written to. It was for us, for our benefit. That's part of what makes it such a gift that we are included in this story. In some sense, this story is about us. We are wrapped up in the truth of this story. This is both about Jesus and from Jesus. And what I want to make crystal clear is that I will have failed in my task of preaching this book to you If anyone leaves this series saying, wow, the future is fascinating. But if you leave saying that instead of, wow, Jesus is amazing, then I will have failed. I want you to leave here saying, this is dope, as a friend of mine says. A lot that I've heard him say a lot recently. This is crazy. Jesus is so glorious. That's what I want you walking away with. I actually don't care if you leave this series with more questions than answers about what the future will be like. Because that's not what this book is here is to give us like beautiful timelines and charts with all these images all over them. We don't need colorful charts and accurate timelines. We need a heavy, significant, glorious, weighty dose of Jesus. So we need to think less about future events and more about the slain Lamb of God who is alive forevermore, as next week's passage will tell us. I don't want anyone leaving this series thinking less about Jesus. Perhaps you can think of it this way. Imagine, and maybe this will happen, that we have a non-Christian visitor with us for each worship service when I preach the book of Revelation. What do we want that person leaving with a really clear sense of? how charts and timelines lay out what this book looks like, or who Jesus is. You know the obvious answer. We want Him to know Christ. You want to know Christ. You want me to know Christ well. That's what this book is about. We want to know the glory of Christ. So why would we assume if we know that a non-Christian needs just to know about who Christ is, not all these details wrapping up together, Why would we think that we need something less? Why would we also assume that God would give us a section of the Bible just to satisfy our curiosity about the future? It does do that in some parts. It does give answers, and I'm not going to shy away from giving those answers. But that's not primarily why God gave us any part of the Bible. There's no single sentence of the Bible that God gives us just to tell us a piece of information. It's always driving toward ethics, toward how you live, toward what you believe, and how that affects your life. So we don't have you know, the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2, so we can build little replicas of what the Garden of Eden would have looked like, or so we can know what the, the Ark would have looked like. We have that book of Genesis to tell you, you can trust this sovereign God who makes everything out of nothing and rules the nations. And the Lord gives us this book to help us walk through the trials of life as a pilgrim here on earth. So, if I'm saying that this book is a gift because it reveals the glory of Christ, that should make you ask the question, what is it about Christ that makes him so glorious? And this book, this, book, this passage, answers that question in a number of ways. First of all, he's glorious in his nature. And you're going to notice I'm kind of skipping around a little bit. Hopefully I'll touch on all the parts that you have questions about here in verses 1-8. through eight. But Christ is glorious in his nature. You notice in verse uh, 5, he is the faithful witness. That means he accurately and perfectly portrayed and revealed God. That's talking about his earthly ministry. He witnessed, he testified, he portrayed the beauty of God faithfully, accurately, while he was here on earth. It goes on to say that he's the firstborn of the dead. This is talking about the fact that he actually died and he actually rose again. And in doing so, he started the new creation. We don't live in the new creation yet. But what you have in the Old Testament is God creating the place like the Garden of Eden and then filling it with people. What he's doing now is creating the people and he'll use those people to fill the new place where he is. And that's what we'll get to at the end of Revelation. And so Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. He's the beginning of that new creation. And so now all of those who are in Christ, the New Testament often uses that language, those who are related to Christ are part of that new creation. 2 Corinthians 5 says, I am a new creation. You are a new creation if you are in Christ. He's also in verse 5 here, the ruler of kings on earth. And I will tell you, this is not a future description of Jesus. This is a present description of Jesus. He's ruling the kings of the earth right now, just like he was ruling the many evil kings of the earth that this letter was written to. This book essentially is a prophetic, apocalyptic letter to tell people how to hold fast to Christ while he holds fast to them in the midst of really terrible persecution around the year 90 when this book was written. But if he was ruling the kings of the earth back then, he is still ruling the kings of the earth right now. you know what that means? It doesn't matter who the president is of our country. It doesn't matter who's ruling over North Korea or Iraq or China or Russia or the Rotary Club in your town. It doesn't matter who the leaders are. He leads them all. He rules them all. And he doesn't want you fretting about them. He doesn't want you fretting about who's on your local school board making decisions about which textbooks your children will be learning from or who gets to use the boys' and the girls' bathrooms. School board leaders get to make decisions like that. That should make us really nervous unless we have a king who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And that's who Jesus is. And that's why he's so glorious. He's also sovereign. Did you notice in verse 8 he says I'm the Alpha and the Omega. That's just the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet and it's just a way of describing, there's a technical term for this, but just a way of saying if he's the A through the Z, he's also the B, C, D, E, and on and on and on all the way to the end. He's the beginning and the end and he's everything in between and if he was there at the beginning and he's there at the end, that means he's ruling over everything in between and so you can trust him. You can view this reality as being shattering to our, uh, our world view, to what you think about life, the lens you use to view the circumstances of life. This fact that Jesus is the beginning and the end should shatter and alter and expand our worldview. It takes us all the way in, it zooms us all the way in, but it also zooms us all the way out so you get this beautiful panoramic vision of who God is and what is going on in the world. Jesus is glorious in his nature. He's also glorious in his work. As part of his work, in verse 5, maybe you have a paragraph break there in the middle of the verse, to him who loves us. That's who Jesus is. Part of his work is loving his people. He goes on to say he freed us from our sins. How in the world does Jesus free people from bondage? Through, look at the text there, verse 5, right in the middle of it. He frees us from our sins by his blood at the end of verse 5. That's the answer. Shedding his blood on a Roman cross as a sacrifice for your sins. And your response is to believe that he can wash you from your sins. And to use the language of this text, he can break the bondage of your sins. All you have to do is believe him and change the direction of your life saying, I hate those sins because they draw me away from God. And if you've never done that, that's what we want you to do. Put your hope in Christ alone, not in your ability to perform to a certain level of Christian standards. As part of this work of Christ, verse 6 says that he made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. That probably sounds familiar to you because of the passage that Mary read for us today from Exodus 19. Exodus 19. What did God make Israel to do in Exodus? To be a kingdom of priests who will through the way they live reflect the glory of God to the nations. And what this is saying is that Jesus is the one who is making the kingdom of priests. What does that say about Jesus? It means that he's God because that's what it, Exodus 19 is telling us. God is the one who makes that kingdom that community of people who live under the headship of Christ. He is the king. We live in his place. We are his loyal subjects, which means we obey him, and in doing so, we tell everyone who knows us there is a king, and you need to bow to him too, and it's glorious to follow him. So do that. That's what we're trying to tell people through our lives and through our testimony, through sharing the gospel with people. He's glorious in that he comes again. This is clearly part of this passage. In verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. That means you will see him. Your eye will see him. You will have an opportunity to respond to Jesus. And now is that opportunity before your eye sees him. I've never seen him. I'm willing to bet a lot of money you haven't either, but you will see him on the last day. And notice what else will happen besides eyes seeing him when he comes again. This is quoting Zechariah 12, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. There's a couple different possible ways we could read that from the Zechariah passage that John is quoting here, the Apostle John, not John the Baptist, but the Apostle John, who wrote the book of John, first, second, and third John. Now he's reading his fifth book of the New Testament. What John is doing is he's quoting Zechariah, and in that passage in chapter 12 of Zechariah, those who are mourning, those who are wailing, those who are weeping are doing so because of the rebellion against God. So it appears here this is the people of all the nations on the earth, that's what he means by the tribes of the earth people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people will be mourning over what they have done to Christ, specifically that they pierced him. So this is talking about people who love Jesus from all over the world, recognizing that he is glorious and that evil people pierced him. But what you notice from the way that John uses this in his gospel, that phrase about piercing him in John 19, and the way you connect that with the book of Mark, you see that the person who speared Christ through, that pierced him, recognized, I think we've made a really bad mistake. I think he actually was the Son of God. What he was doing was in a sense, in a before this was written kind of sense, he was weeping. He was mourning over the fact that they had pierced him. It appears that that man who pierced Jesus may have repented just from the way that that's written in John and in Mark. But every eye will see him, and all the tribes will wail on account of him. This book is a gift because it describes the glory of Christ. Secondly, this book is a gift because it describes God's gracious blessings. Once again, verse 1, he lets you know the truth. That is a blessing from God. He revealed the truth to you. For your benefit, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Are you the servant of God? In other words, have you linked yourself with Christ? You're a servant of somebody, even if it's just yourself. This passage is urging you to be a servant of God if you're not already, but if you are a servant, to say, wow, this was written for my benefit. He lets you know the truth. This is part of God's gracious blessing. In verse 4, This is the part where you realize, oh, so this book is a letter. And the end of Revelation tells you, oh, so this is a letter. And everything in between, all the weird stuff, is part of the body of the letter, prophetically and apocalyptically describing what people needed to know in order to endure raging persecution because of their faith in Christ. This opening of the letter, grace to you and peace, tells you what God wants you to have. He wants you to have grace. He wants you to have all the resources, spiritual resources you need to endure hardship as a Christian. He also wants you to have peace, a settledness in your heart that everything's going to be all right. This book is a gift because it describes God's gracious blessings. It's a gift because it reveals the glory of Christ, because it describes God's gracious blessings. Third, this book is a gift because it expands our horizons. I don't know if you've ever stood up on a hilltop about this time of year when it's really hot and muggy out, and you're in a place like this where you get fireflies. And if you're up on a hilltop, I've noticed this in Pennsylvania about 10 years ago, there were thousands, if not tens of thousands, of fireflies down below us. It was magical. It just kind of expanded your view. Like, wow, I've seen like a dozen fireflies at one time before. I've never seen fields flashing and lighting up over and over again with fireflies. Or it's like the first time you see the ocean. Maybe you drive up and you have to go up a little sandy hill before you see the water. When you finally see it, you're like, what? This has been there my whole life. And this is my first time to see it. Or my favorite, it's like when you walk up the steps at Wrigley Field and you get to the top of the steps and all you see is green, green grass green scoreboard, green ivy, it takes your breath away. It's supposed to take your breath away. That's what it's supposed to do. But you're overwhelmed by beauty. That's what this book does, is it takes your breath away. It gives us a chance to look around and to see beauty. It gives us perspective. It shows us what's true. It takes our eyes off the here and the now, what you're experiencing, what you're feeling, what you're aching over in your heart or even in your body right now, And it takes you to the then and the there of eternity. Makes us realize how big God is, how beautiful God is. So this book expands our horizons. I'm going to tell you five ways it does that real fast. It causes us to look backwards. It reveals a historical event, verse 1, that God actually in time revealed himself to Christ, to an angel, to John, to us. But there was an actual moment of revelation causes us to look backwards. It also causes us to look forwards. It reveals what's going to happen. You saw that in verse 1. The things that must soon take place. You see it in verse 3. The time is near. You see it in verse 7. He's coming with the clouds. That's talking about the book of Daniel, chapter 7. We'll talk about that more next week. But it causes us to look forward to an event that will happen in time that you will be a part of, that all of us will be a part of. It causes us to look upward to God's throne in verse 4. So backward, forward, upward. In verse 4, it tells us that this book gives you grace and peace from God the Father. That's the one it describes as the one who is, was, and is to come. He always was back there in time. There was never a beginning to God, which means he's incomparable. There was a forever of forevers before God made the world. And there is a forever of forevers afterwards. And God was at the beginning of the beginning of the beginning, which never was, and he's still there at the end, and he's there right now too. Which again, for those of you who are aching, who are mourning, who are weeping in your heart, this means that God's with you right now. He's present. He's there to minister to you. So it takes us upward to God's throne. There's the God the Father, there's the God the Spirit. That's who I was talking about with this idea of the seven spirits. I'll talk more about uh, why the author of John, uh, why John, the author of Revelation, talks so much about sevens throughout this series, but here he talks about the Holy Spirit signified by the seven spirits. That's a reference to Zechariah. And then it talks about this is from Jesus. We have this triune picture of God here, as we do throughout the Bible, particularly the New Testament, but alluded to elsewhere. It causes us to look upward to God's throne, where he rules. It also causes us to look outward by that I mean it causes us to look at the church around us. That you aren't the only person that God made into a kingdom of priests. You aren't the only person that Jesus loves, or the only person that Jesus freed from your sins by his blood. He does that for all of those who, through repentant faith, follow Jesus. So he causes, causes us to look outward at the church, those who keep his word in verse 3, those who But it also causes us to look at those who are not yet submitting in verse 7. That's implied by this idea that, well, in verse 3, that there are people who hear, which means there are people who don't hear. There are people who will weep, which means there are people who won't weep, because they're hardened in their hearts. They don't care who Jesus is or what he's done, what he's experienced for you. So it causes us to look outward, both discipling those around us, and evangelistically telling people of Christ. And it causes us to look inward, especially in verse 3 when it says that those who hear and who keep what is written in this book are blessed, and it should make you ask yourself, is that me? Am I blessed because I'm hearing and obeying this word? We're motivated to do this because of who Christ is and the fact that he shed his blood for us to free us from our sins by his sacrifice. This book expands our horizons. Maybe this is one way you can think of this book. It's like a movie that you wish you could watch again a second time. Because when you watch it the first time, you assume that that guy over there is a good guy. And then you get to the end of the movie and you find out he's a deceiver. He's actually the bad guy the whole time. And you want to rewind or just start the DVD over again and watch it again because it just recolors everything you knew about the guy and everything he said to every other character as the movie went on. I don't have any movie like this in mind, but perhaps you do. I know they exist. Okay? I hardly ever watch any movies, so there's that. But this book of Revelation pulls back the curtains and lets you see who's pulling the strings on the other side of the puppet show, so to speak. Not that we live in a puppet show, but the idea that, there is someone who is in control. And it's a good thing that it's not us. It's a good thing that it's God. Father, Son, and Spirit. It also pulls back the curtains to tell you, yeah, that guy who you thought was good is actually a bad guy. And that guy who, for whatever reason, you thought was a bad guy, he's actually on your side. He's fighting for the Lamb, for His glory, just like you are. Even though you don't dot all your eyes with the same little kind of dot that you do. This book expands our horizons. So it reveals the glory of Christ. It describes God's gracious blessings. It expands our horizons. And finally, this book is a gift because it compels a right response. In other words, this book is a gift we do something with. If my parents had heard that there's this random friend of this friend in California, who knows where the friend who gave the gift was? Their mutual friend was in California. So now they found out there's a friend in California who has a friend somewhere in the world who wants to give them a gracious gift. Oh, wow, thank you so much. And then do nothing about it? Don't plan a trip? What's the point of that? Don't just receive the gift and let it sit there. Do something with it. And that's what this book of Revelation urges us to do as well. This book was written to suffering Christians. We'll get into that more in the next several weeks. But suffering Christians in the first century, what were they supposed to do with it? Have you ever asked that question, that there was an original audience, and maybe there's a way that it applied, all of it applied to right then and there? What were they supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? Hear and keep God's Word. That's part of what we're supposed to do. Because what was this book intended to do in the first place? It was intended to warn sinners, like, don't be the one who's hardening your heart while people are wailing on behalf of Christ's suffering. It's intended to comfort sinners, especially those who are being persecuted. And so I just want to ask you, sitting here today, are you worn thin? Are you discouraged by the state of the world or the state of your own heart or the state of your family? Are you ashamed of your many failures? Are you overwhelmed by grief and sorrow and tears? Are you fearing that your faith will fail that you aren't going to make it to the last day with your faith intact, then this book is for you. It is intended to speak to every one of those kinds of people. This book is intended to compel obedience and worship. Worship the Lamb sitting on the throne who receives glory and honor and majesty and dominion forever and ever Instead of bowing your knee to the false gods that the readers, the initial readers of this book were being told, you'd better bow or else. And they lost their lives, many of them, for their faith. There are Christians today who are losing their lives for their faith. So this book's intended to compel obedience and worship. I would urge you to pray for your own heart that as you listen to this sermon series, I pray you'll listen to all of it between now and the holidays or so, that you would be compelled to love and obey and worship Jesus more because you've heard this series, because you've studied this passage, in other words. This book also exposes the truth of who's an insider and an outsider. I would encourage you to look up just on your own time over the course of this series, the different ways that John talks about those who dwell on the earth. It's a way of describing those who are on the bad guy's side. They dwell on the earth as opposed to dwelling with God in eternity. And so this book exposes the truth of those who are on the inside and those who are on the outside. The New Testament uses those categories over and over again. Of course, the Old Testament does too. Either you're in Israel, or you're not in Israel, you're associated with Israel at least in a few cases, like Rahab or someone like that, but by and large, there's, in the Old Testament, there's outsiders and there's insiders. I can't remember which way my hands were going, so we'll just go like this. But there's insiders in the New Testament, and there's outsiders in the New Testament, and this book keeps that theme going. We're not all universally saved. C.S. Lewis was wrong when he says that you can worship other beings besides Aslan, and in the end, everything will be okay. Okay. There are insiders and there are outsiders and this book makes that crystal clear and our call to outsiders is to bow the knee and love Jesus and worship him and acknowledge his sovereignty that he is the one who is and was and is to come. I don't know what the best gift you've ever been given was. Was it for Christmas? Was it for your birthday? For an anniversary? Just a random gift that took your breath away because you were so surprised by it because of when it was given to you or because of what it was? Because of, it was from someone you love so deeply? But no matter what other gifts you've been given or maybe what other gifts you've uh, given to others, on the last day, you'll realize that every gift pales in comparison with the gift of revelation, a gracious gift from God. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, the beauty of this gift you've given us should and does take our breath away. May you cause us to love you, worship you, obey you, hear you, all better and more faithfully because Jesus himself is the faithful witness who perfectly revealed you. And he is the firstborn from the dead. He rose and we too will rise because of our faith in him. And he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so we bow before his sovereignty and give delight, have delight, take delight, and give you praise because of his ruling right now, here in this place and all over the world. May we leave here with buoyant hearts, buoyant steps because of this truth. In Christ's name, amen.